Hey, this is Pastor Ali, one of the lead pastors of Bold Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. If you want to stay up to date with Bold Church, if you want to find out when our next gathering is or how to live stream an event, head over to bold.church. Enjoy the message. Who is excited for church today? It's, it's 11 a.m. You got to be a little bit louder. Who is excited for church? Come on. We got a big day. We got families dedicating their kids. We got several people going public with their faith and baptism. It's unreal what God's been doing since we moved in this building. If we have not met, my name is Ali, and uh, my wife and I, we started this place called Bold Church five years ago with a simple dream. We wanted to create a place, listen, where not only Christians could grow in their faith, that's why we're studying the book of Revelations. Some of you are afraid, don't worry, but it's also a place where you can explore faith. Anyone excited for God's word today? Come on. Uh, we are in a collection of talks called The Seven. Someone say seven. Uh, for those of you that are new, that have not been here the last two weeks, let me quickly catch you up. This book was written by the Apostle John. You, you should have got one of these notebooks on the way in. We, these are free 99. If you mention you know the pastor by name, you get 20% off on this book. And uh, we are studying the most practical chapters in the book of Revelation, just the first three chapters. John, he wrote this book. Uh, he is in a time, he wrote this book in a time of intense persecution. Uh, the Caesar of Rome, uh, this guy named Domitian, he has instituted a rule called Caesar worship, which means he wants you to worship him before you worship Jesus. And Paul, John is like, I ain't doing that. So he gets thrown to Alcatraz, which is an island called Patmos in that day. And he has this revelation. Jesus shows up, not gentle Jesus. The language I like to use is glorious Jesus. And he gives seven messages to seven churches. And even though the Bible was not written to us, it is written for us. And every week we've been talking about a different church. Week one, we talked about Ephesus. Someone shout Ephesus. And they had lost their love. And the last week it was Smyrna. Someone shout Smyrna. Smyrna. Today is the church of Pergamon. If you have your Bible, go to, with me to 12, page 12 in this book. If you don't, don't worry. It's on the screen. When you see it, somebody shout amen. amen. And, the, and to the angel of the church of Pergamon, the words of him who has a sharp ed, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And remember, this is Jesus speaking. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Are you excited for God's word today? Let me just tell you, today's sermon, there's an ethos, there's a general like emotion that Jesus wants to teach us. It's about compromise. Anyone love cereal? Show of hands. This is my favorite cereal. Come on. If you don't like this, please find a new church. Come on. Can I share a secret with you? If you put this in milk and let it get a little bit soggy, it's white boy tres leches right there. It's true. You're welcome. I just taught you something. Some of you are more Mexican than you realize. But 
I wanted this as a little kid. And my dad, God bless him, he's in heaven right now, he would get this thing called cinnamon toaster cereal. Come on. If your parents got you this, this didn't just taste bad. This is child abuse. Because it looks like cereal. It, it feels like cereal. This is compromise right here. And every week, I've been trying to make this word that we've been studying stick. And so this week, we got a theme song. Can we play this theme song? If you, this is an oldie but a goodie. If you want to dance, you can dance. Some of you, you used to do this in the club before you just in the church. It's okay. No one's going to judge you. Okay, this is not the song that I was thinking. And some of you don't know who that guy is. His name is Weird Al. He sings like a musician. He sounds like a musician. But he ain't the real thing. It was either Weird Al or Taylor Swift. I didn't want to offend everyone. It's me. Hi. I'm just kidding. But that song is compromised. It's not the real thing. The title of my sermon today is this, The Cancer of Compromise. I'm coming. Y'all ready for God's word? Let's pray before we begin. God, thank you so much, Lord, that you got a word for us this morning. We may have walked in one way, God, but we want to leave another. We're so grateful, Jesus, that you see everything that's happening in all these churches. And even after you rebuke them, you still commit your life to them. You still say, I'm with you. I'm for you. I just pray, Jesus, that there would be people in this room that feel alienated from you. That maybe you would touch their heart this morning, God. That you left heaven, God, to die on a cross for our sins. And we're not in this room because we're good. We're in this room because you are, Jesus. We're loved by a good God. And if you believe that, everybody said? Everybody said? Can we just give Jesus a round of applause? Come on. We are studying the third book in the third church in the book of Revelation. Pergamum. Someone say Pergamum. Pergamum is, you got to understand, the capital of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. This is the crown jewel of this, this region. And, and Pergamum, it has this vibe, this energy, literally this influence that other cities don't have. Think of like London or Paris or Berlin. It has influence. It may not have to be the economic city of these countries, but it has influence that other cities don't have. And one of the things you got to realize, it's, it's intellectual influence. The largest library in the world, second largest library in the world is in Pergamum, 200,000 books. And that may not sound like a lot, but all of these books were handwritten before the printing press. These are on parchment paper. Literally, the word parchment comes, it's derived from the word Pergamum. And you're going to hear the words of Jesus. His tone is a little bit different than Ephesus. In Ephesus, it was about lost love. In Smyrna, it was about pressure, your faith being under pressure. Today, he's coming for us. And read this word, Revelations 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. Now, if you're new, you probably don't notice this pattern. But every week, if you've been coming, you notice that Jesus says something about himself that's different in every other week. Every week, he's saying something different to another church because he's giving them a revelation of who he is based on their problems. The church in Pergamum needs to know that Jesus' sword, what does the sword mean? It's, it's bigger than the sword in their life. And he's doing this for two primary reasons. Number one is precedent. Someone say precedent. You got to understand Pergamum, in the same way that California has a symbol for our state, it's the grizzly bear, right? We see on the flag, it's a symbol of our state. Pergamum has a symbol as well. It's the sword. And they have what's called the right to execute or the right to the sword. That means they can have exercise capital punishment whenever they want. 
So there's this fear. There's this apprehension. I can't go against the state. I can't do what they don't want me to do. Or they can execute me at any time. And there's this fear, not just among the pagans, but even among the Christians. And Jesus showing up saying, yo, 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 yo. I know they got a sword. I know they got the right to the sword. But do you know who I am? When I, even when I talk, a sword comes out of my mouth. And he's trying to remind them, your vision of me is too small. And some of you in this room, let me just be honest. You come from a Catholic background. When I say Jesus, you think of Jesus on a cross. I call that suffering Jesus. Some of you, 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 all you have is a gentle Jesus. When I say Jesus, you see the, Jesus a shepherd. He's got a cane in his hand. He's got sheep around him, maybe on his shoulders. I call that gentle Jesus. Some of you, you have this, the only image you have is what I call teaching Jesus. He's surrounded by his disciples. He's teaching them. And all of those things are not valid or incorrect. They're just incomplete. They're not large enough. Can I, can I show you what Jesus, how he describes himself in the book of Revelations? This is Revelations 20, 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This makes all the pacifists uncomfortable with Jesus. His eyes are like flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Like This is a crown with many jewels. And he has a name written on it that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This gives new meaning to your clothes dripping, by the way. <laughs> and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Are they going like on a parade? What are they doing? Watch what he says. From his mouth comes a, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with an iron the with a rod of iron he will tread aka crush the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written aka Jesus has tattoos <laughs> all you parents that are like oh my gosh that's so ungodly you're going to be uncomfortable with Jesus in heaven okay cuz he's got tattoos and he has, the tattoo is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Come on, the, the, the church matters. Jesus is coming back for his church. And some of you, the vision that you have is too small. It's not gentle Jesus or suffering Jesus. It's glorious Jesus. Anybody thankful for Jesus this morning? And Jesus is pulling this sword out of his mouth because he wants, he wants to tell them, listen, you're afraid of Rome more than you're afraid of me. Why do you care what they think? My sword is bigger than theirs. And the Bible says that the wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And Jesus is trying to remind them, who do you fear? It's not just precedent, though, that Pergamum is in a battle. And it's not a battle with swords and knives. It's not a battle with flesh and blood. It's a battle with ideas. It's a battlefield of the mind. It's a theological battle. And even though it raged back then, listen, it's still raging today. And you need to see this. And this is a word that was not written to us, but it is for us. And Jesus is coming to them, and he's, this sword is the sword of the Spirit. And he wants to divide right from wrong, lies from truth. And he wants to tell them there's a battle happening, but it's not with men, but with truth. Look what the great theologian John Stott says. He's a pastor and theologian. He says, here in Pergamum was pitched a battle that was being fought in which soldiers, in which soldiers were not men, but ideas. You got to see this idea that there's this pressure, this persecution on this church, and the symbol, the flag of this country, the city, is a sword. And Jesus says, "My sword's bigger." 
He's almost like he's drawing a line in the sand. He wants to tell us this. If you don't know God's truth, listen, you'll be bound by the enemy's lies. And he's speaking to a bunch of Christians. Listen, you know God's truth, but you're not living in it. And so you're in bondage. And he's trying to set them free. And the pressure in Ephesus and in Smyrna was external. The pressure in Pergamum is internal. It's a cancer that's killing them. He says, you're, you're called. You're called to be Cinnamon Toast Crunch. But you've compromised. You don't even know the truth anymore. You're awful. You should throw that away. The only one that should eat that other cereal is your cat. Because everyone knows cats are demonic. And Jesus is saying, listen, this imagery that he spoke to them, it ought to speak to us. That we still ha- we're still in this battle. That we don't fight people. We don't fight governments. It's not a battle with flesh and blood, but with truth and lies. Amen. And then they just speak candidly. There's no way you can win this battle. Come to church once a week. And the only time you hear, see God's word is on that screen for 30 minutes. Because you're going to go out in the world and the average Christian spends three hours a day on social media. You're being indoctrinated. You're being taught by them and not the word of God. And all they want to give you is depression, fear, anxiety, and you will never walk in what God has for you. If I can summarize what God wants to say in one sentence, is this, that God says, you may be headed to heaven, but you're bound here on earth. And Christ comes and he comes to rebuke this church. And even though we're not Pergamum, Jesus is saying similar words to us. Amen? And there are four things this morning that, that Jesus, we're just going to walk through, quick Bible study, and try to glean some teachings and some things that apply to our life. And there's four things. I'm going to show you the outline on the very front end. It's this, simply this. Jesus commands... He complains, he, no, I'm sorry, he commends, he complains, he commands, and he commits. Someone say commends. commends. A little bit louder. Someone say commends. commends. Let me tell you why this is important. It's the cancer of comp. I work so hard to make all of these C's, and none of you are excited as I am. <laughs> I, I, I want some praise for my creativity, by the way. Come on. <laughs> Revelations chapter 2, verse 13 says, I know where you dwell. Someone shout dwell. Where Satan's throne is. Imagine you're buying a house and the real estate agent is like driving around in the best neighborhood trying to show you the worst house. Like, oh my gosh, you want this house. Google's 15 minutes away, Facebook's 10, Apple's, and Satan lives down the street. No one will be like, I want this. And some of you, just, let's just be honest, you hear these words you're like, maybe Jesus is just exaggerating. Maybe he's just being superfluous. Come on, he's just like using words that don't really mean that. And the problem is that we live in modern America. Most of the world believes in the supernatural. Something shifted in America during the, the, internet, the industrial revolution. That we, we became, we put our hope in the natural, not the supernatural. And the whole world knows that the spiritual world is more real than the physical world, except for Americans. So when you read this, you read this with American eyes. Oh, he's just, where's the address? That's what you're thinking. Can I find, how much, well, what are his property taxes on Zillow? I want to see how much he paid for this house. And the problem is that there's two extremes in Christianity. One, he's in nothing. So when your kid gets sick, you run to Tylenol and not prayer. When your marriage is hurting, you don't ask God for wisdom. You go to a counselor. And I thought those things are wrong. We need those things. But God must not be your last response, but your first response. Amen? And you're almost living like a functional atheist that there is no spiritual world, even though you believe in one. And the opposite extreme is he's in everything. I got fired from work this today. Why? The devil. 
well, maybe because you show up to late every week. Maybe <laughs> my tire popped on the, on the way. To, I'm sorry I'm late. What happened? The devil. <laughs> when was the last time you changed your tire, right? And there's this extreme where he's in everything, which he's clearly not, or he's in nothing. And Jesus is trying to teach us the spiritual world realm is real. Amen? And they says, yet you hold fast my name, which means you haven't given up even though he's living there. And you do not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. Someone say Antipas. Antipas was actually the pastor, or he was called the bishop of, Antip- of Pergamum. Bishop is a little bit different than the word pastor. Pastor oversees one congregation. A bishop oversees multiple congregations. This guy's living large as a pastor. And Domitian comes to him and says, I want you, you to deny the faith. Because in Domitian's mind, he's the ruler of Rome. He goes, if I can take the leader out, the church will die. And he goes to Antipas and says, either you leave town or you bend your knee to me so your church sees it. He doesn't pack his bags, nor does he stop worshiping Jesus. And they put this man, history says, in a, a bronze bull. And they put a fire underneath him. They literally burned this man, probably a very painful, very slow death. He didn't just pack his bags and move to Texas when things got hard. <laughs> if you're uncomfortable, that's not me. That's just the Holy Spirit convicting you. And then he continues, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Someone say dwells. It's the second time Jesus says that Jesus, Satan has a house here. And you need to move away from this idea that it's a physical address and more of a spiritual reality. For example, let me explain this to you. In the book of Revelation, there's this beast that's often explained as having authority over the nations. And in our mind, we, we may read the, the book of Revelation like, man, this imagery is almost like fantasia. Like, what is going on? Is there a beast that's literally going to come out of the water and like take over the nations? You need to understand that it is metaphorical. And let me teach you a principle about Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. So when there's something in the Bible that you don't understand, you need to use other verses in the Bible to interpret what is confusing. The Old Testament interprets the New Testament. And the book of Revelations, you got to use the book of Daniel, who talks about this beast. In the book of Daniel, Daniel gets this revelation of this beast. Four different metals. It's clay, there's iron, there's steel, and it's this governmental authority. And what Jesus is trying to say is, not that, Jesus has a, not that Satan has a physical house, but he has political authority in this city that's different than any other city. And if you look at the history of Pergamum, they were the first city in all of Asia Minor to implement Caesar worship. And what Pergamum did, all the other cities did. Let me explain why that's so significant. If Jesus were here today and he would write a letter to Bull Church, he would say, I know that you're in California. I know you're in Silicon Valley and Satan dwells there. Why would Jesus use those words? Because what California does, every other state does. Take, go back three years and COVID-19 happened. Everything California did, Oregon and Washington did. Why? Because we're the, we're the Pergamum of the New Testament. Whatever happens here, other states follow. It's not that Satan literally has a house in California, although he might. He's probably in L.A. near the Lakers fans, you know. But what he's trying to say is there's political influence, and the beast is this demonic power that controls. you got to see there is a spiritual side to what's happening in California. And he's talking to this reality. There are three kinds of worship that are crazy demonic in Pergamum. The first is Caesar worship. This guy, the the ruler, wants you to worship a man. Listen, I've been trying to get my sister to worship me for like 20 years. (laughs) 
The only way it's ever going to happen is if I put a knife to the throat, right? It's the only way you're going to worship someone. But there's also Zeus worship. The largest Zeus temple in Asia Minor is in Pergamum. But there's another worship that most Christians don't know about. It's this god, this false god named Ascipus. He's the god of healing. Ascipus. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. Ascipus. So if you got sick and a doctor couldn't heal your disease or ailment, you would go to this temple. You would get, strip down your clothes to your skimpies. You would lie on the ground, and they would let, listen, hundreds of snakes slither over you. And they believed that the snakes would, would heal your body, which is crazy to me because in the scriptures, Satan is most often depicted as a snake. And here Jesus is saying, dude, I know that you have false Caesar worship. You have false Zeus worship. You have false escapist worship. I see the pressure, but you didn't leave. He's almost high-fiving these people. I know that Satan dwells in your city. And then he uses this word dwell. Someone say dwell. He, goes, he says this, where Satan dwells. And this word dwell in English is used 24 times in the New Testament. This is not the word that's used in the, in the rest of the Gospels. The word that Jesus uses is very unique. Let's do a Greek word study. It's this word, parochian. Parochian is very, next slide, one more. Parochian, this is the word that's most often used in the New Testament. It means this, you're a stranger or a sojourner, someone passing through. It's, just, it's trying to connote this idea that you're just temporarily here. You're just passing through. You're just dwelling here for a little season. That's not the word that Jesus uses, though. The word that Jesus uses explains so much. It's this, katokian. It's almost like a street fighter word. Ah, dukent, katokikin. It's my millennial side coming out. I apologize. And this word means you're a per... Wow. I didn't think that joke would stick. The word that Jesus uses means you're a permanent resident. You don't just move when things get hard. You don't just move from a blue state to a red state. He's calling out all these Christians that move from California to Texas because things are easier there. Come on. He's calling out all the Christians that just want to move away because it's so dark. Oh, my gosh. He's like, bro, stop being a weak Christian. Stay there. I called you to be a light in a dark city. What's the point of being light around other light bulbs? The only light shines brightest in the darkness. Amen? He wants you to be salt. You may be the only Christian that your neighbors ever have. You may be the only Christian in your family that, that, can, that can explain to them the gospel. And it's so easy to selfishly say, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. And move to Florida and Texas. Jesus saying to this church, you could have moved. You could have just packed up when COVID got hard, but you didn't. And he's high-fiving them. I'm not calling out all of you on the, online that watch us from Texas. I love you. But I am calling you out. We're called to hard things. Amen? Yeah. He, he is acknowledging the difficulty of being a Christian in California. The same way that he's acknowledging it's, it's hard to be in a city where they have the right to the sword. He's saying, listen, listen, listen. Your view of me is too small. Because even when I speak, a sword comes out of my mouth. So number one, he, he commends. Number two, he complains. Someone say complains. This is where it gets a little bit fun. You might leave. It's okay. We'll pray for you. <laughs> Revelations 2, verse 15. But I have a few things against you. Imagine Jesus saying this to you. You're like, Jesus, I go to church every week, and you're like, I got a few things against you. Jesus, my pastor got killed. I got a few things against you. Jesus, Satan has a house on my neighborhood. I got a few things against you. 
And he continues, you have some who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Someone say Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, many of you are maybe new to church. You maybe have never read Numbers 22. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version of who Balaam is. This is 2 Peter chapter 2. It says this. They left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam. Someone say Balaam. Son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey. Someone say donkey. An animal without speech. Who spoke like Shrek with a human voice. And restrained the prophet's madness. Let me kind of catch you up so some of you are like, what is going on? Is this a Disney movie? What's... So Balaam is a prophet. He's a false prophet, though. He's not a Jew. He doesn't follow Jesus. He's not a follower of Yahweh. And he's known in, at, at his time as being a sorcerer. He's got, like, X-Men demonic superpowers, right? And the Israelites are traveling through the wilderness, and through the promised land, and this king named Balak wants to curse them because they're at his doorstep. And he goes to Balaam and says, here's some money, here's some crypto, some NTFs, some Bitcoin. Put a curse on those people. And Balaam's like, Bling, bling, I'm all about it. Give it to me. The night before he curses them, God comes to him in a dream and says, you're not going to curse them. And the guy goes, you know what? I'm still going to ride there. Maybe just hang out. So he gets on this donkey, and he's riding up this mountain. And the donkey refuses to go up. So Balaam gets angry, starts beating. Don't call PETA. He starts beating his donkey. Not once, three times, like almost to the point of death. And it gets to the point where the donkey stops and sits down. And God is trying to get this man's attention. Gave him a dream, he won't listen. The donkey won't move, so he opens the donkey's mouth. And the donkey starts talking. Let me just acknowledge how weird this is. Some of you are like, I brought my friend for the first time. It's not like Shrek every week. Please come back next week. Let me just acknowledge the weirdness of this story. Come on. A talking donkey, what are we talking about here? That's not even the principle, though. God is trying to get this man's attention. Gave him a dream, he won't listen. Give him a talking donkey like Shrek, he won't listen. Then God has to open up Balaam's eyes, and he sees an angel standing with a sword on the path to the mountain. The donkey was literally saving this man's life. And Balaam is so stubborn, he refused to listen. I roll like this, sometimes God will use an ass to wake you up. You can't get this teaching anywhere else. Let me just tell you. Sometimes you got to listen to your critics. Sometimes the, some, of what you, some of what you need is tough love. And Balaam wants the money. We haven't even got to the best part of the story yet. Balaam is hungry for money. And he knows he cannot curse the Israelites. So he comes up with another plan. He goes, Balaam, those dudes over there, I know how to get Israel. Go to this city called Moab. Get all the girls that are allergic to clothes, you know, all the girls that are on OnlyFans, and send them to Israel and have them go into sexual immorality. And this is how Balak stops Israel from advancing. It's not by putting a curse on them. I wrote like this. If the enemy is unable to curse you, he will attempt to corrupt you. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The enemy cannot put anything on you. Why? Because any curse went upon Christ, the cross. 
but he will lie to you. He will corrupt you. He'll say, I know you're supposed to be this, but this is just as good. You've obeyed half of it. It's okay if you just don't do this whole part. And there's this pressure because everyone else is living this way. You want to live like them too. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're called to be this. Not cat food. The real thing. A.W. Tozer, he said it like this. He says, we are we are sent to bless the world, but we are never told to compromise. Someone say compromise, compromise. with it. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not compromise. Someone say compromise. But an ultimatum. And often what happens, I've seen this again and again and again. The Christians, they know the truth and the pressure becomes, to, you don't want to live it. I wrote like this, compromise is the quickest path to relieve pressure. You compromise because it's too hard. You don't want to do it. So you make excuses. And that isn't even the worst part of the story. The Balaamites, they came and they, they committed sexual morality. But there's also the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, these are pagans that became Christians. And instead of abandoning paganism, instead of abandoning temple worship, they brought that to the church. See, the gospel is that you and I, the wage of sin is death, that you and I fall short of the glory of God, that you and I, as good as we are, as honest as we are, we're not good enough. And heaven isn't filled with good people. It's actually filled with forgiven people. And God knew we could never get to him, so he came to us. And God sent Jesus. Anybody thankful for Jesus? And Jesus then lived the life. He then lived the life we couldn't live. But it's only half of it. He then died the death we were supposed to die. And he died for the things I did wrong. He took my wrath. He took on my mistakes. And now I'm forgiven, even though I know I'm sinful. And I'm righteous because I have his righteousness. That's the gospel. And the Nicolaitans, they knew this, but then they said, you know what? Because I'm forgiven, I can do anything I want. And the reality is, I wrote like this, it's one thing to struggle with your flesh. It's another thing to use God's word to cater to your flesh. That's called deception. I hear this all the time. Pastor Ali, we're engaged. She's, we're married in my heart. We can have sex. You're also stupid in your heart. Come on. And I see Christians all the time twisting God's word, compromising on what he clearly calls us to do because everyone else is doing it. Well, everyone watches porn, Pastor, I'm not hurting anyone. You're called to be different. And that's the part that many of us don't like to hear. Jesus sees what you and I do, and he calls us all out. And it's not my body, my choice. The scriptures are very clear. It's my body, his choice. That's a hard word to hear in our generation. When, when there are rallies, when there are protests, that's the rally cry of this generation. And the rally cry of a Christian is, it's not my body anymore. Actually, it's, it's, it's higher than that. It's not just God's body. The Bible says, it's, my body belongs to my spouse. It means, Pastor Yaz, you, you can have me anytime you want. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Let me just... It's, 
I, I promise never to have headaches. I promise never to be tired. You can have me anytime you want, honey. Because it's not my body anymore. It belongs to God. And often what we do is we use grace as a license to do whatever we want. And we would never do that in other areas of our life, but we do that in the church. It's so weird to me. Imagine for a moment you got your driver's license. Imagine when you were 16 and you got your driver's license for the first time. Remember when you can leave your parents' house and they don't have control of the radio anymore, how fun that was? As soon as you turn the corner and you're out of you, you go like 300 miles an hour. Everyone remembers those days. Imagine, though, you make some mistakes, you drink a little bit of alcohol, and you get into an accident. Huge pileup, several people are injured. No one's died, though. And the cops are there to arrest you, and you pull out your, your, your wallet. You're like, no, no, I'm not going to jail. I got a driver's license, officer. Let me go. That's what Christians are doing. I wrote like this. Grace is a license to live free, not a license to crash willfully. What you would never do with your car, why do you do with your body? And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not your body anymore. And this battle in Pergamum is not with swords, but with truth. You're called to be this. And he's complaining. Stop doing what everyone else is doing. I don't care if every Christian in the church lives like that fake Siri. You're called to be holy because I'm holy. And your call is not to me. Your call is to Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. And he continues. He doesn't just commend them for staying when things got hard. He doesn't just complain under the pressure, this theological pressure. He commands. Someone say commands. And one of the things I want to emphasize so clearly is we're studying just the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. I'm trying to make this collection of talks as practical as I can. This is where it's going to get super practical. I would take notes. Why? Because you're more likely to go to heaven if you take notes in church. People ask, what's the percentage? 95% more likely to go to heaven if you take notes in church. Revelation 2.16 says this. Therefore, repent. Someone say, repent. If not, I will come to you soon. And war against them with the sword of my mouth. For Jesus, change is always internal, not external. He doesn't want to change your behavior. He wants to change the way you think. Because you move in the direction of your thoughts. Repentance literally means change your mind. God wants to transform you like a butterfly from the inside out. Read this verse. This is Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Jesus is trying to teach us, you don't just walk and accidentally stumble into holiness. You think your way there. So I'll give you four things on how to Practically repent. Number one is filtering. Someone shout filtering. Literally means what it means. You, the same way you filter a photo, you gotta, you gotta filter your mind. Some of you haven't posted a real image of yourself on Instagram for like 10 years. <laughs> Every time we see you, we're like, who, who are you? I, and what, what, what do we do on Instagram? We remove the blemishes, we take out the bad parts. And some of you spend more time filtering photos than filtering your mind. Filtering is about removing the negative thoughts. Second thing is feeding. Someone shout feeding. Whereas filtering is taken out, feeding is putting in. What are you putting in your mind? 
What are you feeding your soul? You can't expect to put in negative and get out positive. You can't think angry thoughts and be a happy, calm person. You can't think lustful thoughts and not expect that to influence you. God wants to give you life and life abundantly. And if you, I'm going to say it again. If the only time you're reading God's word is here, you won't have enough feeding to survive the week. God wants you to feed yourself on God's word Monday through Saturday. Amen. Number three is fighting. Someone shout fighting. fighting. I'm a slow learner. Maybe you can relate. I have thought negative thoughts my whole life. And God, during COVID, began to rebuke me during my depression. Stop allowing those thoughts to be there. Because not every thought that goes in your mind is from you. Because I'm the one that didn't think the world was as spiritual as it was. Maybe the devil's planting that thought. Maybe it's not just my flesh. Maybe instead of allowing it to rummage there and stay there, I got to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. One theologian, he says this, I can't control a bird from landing in my head, but I can prevent him from building a nest in my head. Some of you, these thoughts that come, you know God doesn't want you to get divorced. So why do you entertain that thought? When it comes, say no. As for me and my house, we're going to follow Jesus. As dark as it is, I'm going to fight until the bitter end. We're going to go until the wheels fall off. The enemy, he just wants to, he wants to attack you here. This is his playground. It's not with bullets and swords. It's with thoughts. Last one is focus. Someone shout focus. Whatever I focus on gets larger in my life. I'm going to give you a promise that is so powerful. It's Isaiah 26, verse 2. You keep him in perfect peace. Someone say perfect peace. Anyone want perfect peace this morning? Anyone overwhelmed with work? Maybe their finances. Maybe your relationships are difficult. Maybe your boss is crazy. Maybe you're the crazy boss and no one knows. But God wants to give you perfect peace. And here's the solution. Here's how you get it. Those whose mind is stayed on you. Which means if I keep my mind focused on God, listen, God will keep my mind in perfect peace. It's a promise. And Jesus is saying repent. He's making it super practical. I know you're in Pergamum. I know the symbol for that city is a sword. But when I speak, a double-edged sword comes out of my mouth. I know that the, the city is so demonic. Satan has a house. But don't leave. He can't curse you, but he's going to try to corrupt you. I've called you to live different. Now he's rebuking them. And this last one is my personal favorite. I'm a pastor. I don't just see the good with the baptisms and the dedication. I also see the bad. And I can't tell you how many couples have never been the same since COVID. The fighting the unfaithfulness. And in divorce, often what happens is the other spouse sees the worst of you and says, I'm out. But what's beautiful about Jesus is that he sees the worst in us and says, I'm still all in. This last one is commits. Someone say commits. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's not turning his back on us. He's not saying, oh my gosh, I don't want you to be my people. He's recommitting to them even in their brokenness. Watch what he says. To the one who conquers, 
I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna is in the Old Testament. The Israelites were led to the wilderness for 40 years, and God gave them manna. He's trying to tell them, the world won't satisfy you. I satisfy you. And I will give you, I will give him a white stone. Someone say white stone. With a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. See, in Pergamum, they, the people wore a necklace with a white stone on it. It often had a name that no one knew. And the, and the stone was symbolic that that person was a promise of protection. That person was a promise of hope. That person was a promise of someone who was greater than them, was with them. And Jesus is saying, dude, do you know who I am? I've seen all the things you've done and I commit myself to you. I read this book once called The Culture Code. And in it, there was this study done at Stanford University where they went to this elementary school in Palo Alto and they went to a second grade class, 30 kids. And there was clear that 10 of these kids were like brilliant. They're all doing A's. And then there were 10 kids who were like borderline struggling. They might need to be held back. And Stanford wanted to do a social experiment. So they went to the school and they tested the students, but then they gave the teachers fake test results. They went to the, the bottom 10 students and said, these students, you'd be surprised, they're actually savants. These guys are so smart, that's why they're not doing well in school. But they didn't tell the students this, they only told the faculty. Stanford was doing a social experiment, so they told these results. They left for six months, and then they came back and retested those same 30 students. Something happened that they didn't expect. The kids at the bottom, they became the best kids in the class. Because what Stanford was trying to show is that your success in life is not determined just by you, but you need someone who believes in you. And what they found is those kids, when they struggled in class, the teacher, because they now believed in the kids, they said, oh, you're struggling because you're really smart. Let me, let me give you a little bit more help. There's one in heaven who's better than any public teacher in Palo Alto. And he sees everything you've ever done, and he commits to you. You can be crusty, cinnamon toast crunch, and he will love you until you become the real thing. That's the gospel. That none of us are good enough. All of us fall short even after we accept Jesus. That's what is good news about Jesus. We're this. It's not our effort. It's his love and commitment to us that makes us this. So I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Because it's time to pray to be real. Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Let's abandon Weird Al. Let's abandon Taylor Swift. Let's be real Christians. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the hero of Revelation. God, I'm so encouraged that even when I fall short, when I know the truth, you lovingly rebuke me. And instead of abandoning me like I deserve, you commit to me. Because you see more in me than I see in myself. Thank you, Jesus, that you didn't just die on a cross one time. That your forgiveness is not a momentary thing, it's a lifetime thing. God, I'm sorry that I've compromised. I'm sorry that I haven't lived up to what you've called me to. I want to live for your glory. I want to live, I want to be real, God. I want to live different for you. And I'm so thankful, God, that 
You love me even in my brokenness. I don't have to perform for your love. I want to do it from a place of your love. With every eye closed and every head bowed, I just want to pray a prayer of blessing. God, I pray for, this, for us as a church. God, for five years, we were not mature enough to go through this book, but now we are. God, we're hearing some messages that we may not want to hear, but you're giving us the word of God, what we need. We all need this truth. It's time to take off the diaper. It's time to live for you, Jesus. And you love us in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our compromise, but you call us to a higher place because you see more in us than we see in ourselves. God, help me live for your glory. Help me, Jesus, accept your truth when none of my friends want to accept it. And there are some of you in this room, you didn't know that Jesus is so committed to you. He sees all of your sin, and he still wants a relationship with you. That's the gospel. It's not about religion, you doing anything. The gospel is God did all the work so that you could be close to him. He left heaven 2,000 years ago, and God, the eternal one, became finite and human, fully God and fully man. He didn't come to give us a book or religion. He came to die on a cross as a substitute for our sin. The blood of animals does not take sin away. The blood of Jesus does. And the work of a Christian is to place your faith in this one who loves us, who believes in us more than any teacher in Stanford. He has a plan. He has a purpose for your life. And he brought you to this room because he wants to walk with you all the days of your life. But you have to accept him as your Lord and Savior. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if you've never prayed that prayer and you want to take that next step, that first step of saying, you know what, I believe in Jesus. I want him to be my God. I want to pray a prayer. I want you to if that was you, just shoot your hand up. Just everyone who's praying that prayer, all of us out loud say, thank you, Jesus, for leaving heaven for me. Thank you for dying on a cross for my sin. I believe the gospel. I repent of my sin. I turn and change my mind. I want to follow you, Lord. As much as I understand now, I receive your gift of forgiveness and salvation. With every eye closed and every head bowed, we would love to help you take your next step. We got a book for you, but I got to know who you are. You're not saying yes to me. You're not saying yes to this church. You're saying yes to Jesus. With every eye closed and every head bowed, I want to count to three. I want you to shoot your hand up. We'd love to help you take your next step in faith. One, two, three. If that's you this morning, just shoot your hand up. See your hand back there. See your hand over there in the back. Church, can we give it up for the hands that went up? We're going to continue worshiping. If I can you stand up, let's sing loud to Jesus. Come on. This is our time for our tithes and offerings. We don't give to God for a blessing, we give to God from a blessing. That the one who conquered death on our behalf already gave us everything we need, which is salvation. Let me just pray for the offering. Thank you, Jesus, that the tomb is empty and there's news to tell. Thank you, God, that in the most unchurched region in the entire country, a place where Satan's throne literally dwells, God, we ain't backing down. We're not going to be compromising. We're going to follow you with all of our heart. And if you believe that, everybody said... Hey, thank you again for listening to today's message. 
If you found today's sermon encouraging, inspiring, would you consider subscribing to this podcast? That way you won't miss the next word that's coming. See you next time.